I want to show you one of the most important things that you will ever find inside of my house. And, and maybe this could be one of the most important things that you might find inside of your house too. Are you ready? This is it. Paper towel. This, we go through a lot of paper towel in my house. It, it, it's because we have kids, we have uh, cooking we do, we clean, we have a dog, and so we, we go through a lot of paper towel. All of those things in our house are things that can cause incredible messes, and so we go through it all the time. And it's incredible to me often how long it takes to clean up a mess, but how quickly a mess can happen. Let, let me give you an example. I'm going to briefly pick on my 13-year-old daughter, Rory, and I'm going to show you a picture. This is a current picture of her bedroom. Now, I got permission from her to show you this, and you can see her organizational skills here are lacking. It doesn't matter how often we say, pick up your dirty clothes, you can see, in fact, I don't know, some of those could be clean clothes. We don't know for sure which are dirty and clean unless you smell them. This is typical in my house, and what amazes me is that no matter what, she goes in to clean her room, and she'll come out hours later, and it's still looks like this. I'm not sure how she does it. It's, it's incredible. I, I, I know, though, she's very creative. She loves to do crafts. And so oftentimes, I see her running downstairs to grab the paper towel because there's probably glue, there's marker, there's glitter, and then she's got glitter, and then there's more glitter. I don't know how she does. There's glitter on the desk. There's glitter on the carpet. There's glitter in her hair. Just the word glitter makes the hair on the back of my wife's neck stand straight up. We go through a lot of paper towel in Rory's room. But I'm not just going to pick on Rory this morning. That wouldn't be fair because I have some mess issues of my own. So I can't believe I'm going to show you this. Whew. This is a current picture of my desk as you would see it this morning in my office. And you can see here, my organizational skills aren't a whole lot better than what Rory's are. In fact, you can see some piles, some piles of papers developing here. There's really three piles, although I'm starting to get a fourth pile going. It's because I don't know what to do with stuff. I don't, I don't know what to throw away, I don't know what to keep, and if I keep it, I don't know where to put it so that I don't lose it, and it's important, even though I haven't looked at it in a year, you never know, I might need it, and so I, I develop these piles and this system of piles that I work out of, and then about once a year, I get sick of the piles, I get overwhelmed with the piles, not knowing what to do with them anymore, and running out of workspace, and so I purge. And then I purge everything. I get out the paper towel and I clean up the old coffee stains and the water stains and I clean off the papers and I start fresh so that tomorrow morning a new pile can begin. 
That is how I operate. I don't know why you can see from that picture that obviously it's about time for me to go through a purge cycle again. It's a new year. Perhaps this week, maybe that'll happen. But we all have messes. And, 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 and when they're in our homes, in our cars, you know, usually paper towel can clean them up. But I think the, the messes that we're looking at over these next few weeks here are, are, are messes I'm not sure paper towel can clean up. How do you clean up messes that are, that, that are part of your personal life? You know those messes that, that are, are, are constantly residing in all of us. They plague us daily. They're the ones that, 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 that spill out of our lives and into our relationships, and they cause problems in our relationships with other people and with God. How do we clean those messes up? Well, I have three ways I clean messes up like that in my life. Let me share with you. Maybe you can uh, relate to one of these three. Those kind of messes, usually I clean up one by just ignoring them. I, I just, I pretend they're not there. I learn to, to live my life around the messes in my life. I just choose to not acknowledge them. If I see them, I turn the other way. I don't deal with them. I ignore the mess. That's probably my preferred method. That's my choice if I'm going to go to one of these I like ignoring it. That's, that's me. The second way that I can sometimes deal with messes in my life are to blame other people. It's not my fault. It, I own nothing. I don't have a mess. Y'all have a mess. And if I have a mess, it's because of, it's because of you, not because of me. It's your guys' problem. I own nothing. It's everyone else's fault. That's the blame game. Or option three, I actually own my mess, acknowledge my mess, and I take steps to fix my mess. That's the third option. And obviously, of the three options I gave you, the third one is the best option, but it's not always the most fun, and it's often the most difficult option. And so if you're like me, I want to give you some good news this morning because together we are going to address these messes. And so over the next three weeks, we're going to do just that. We're going to plan on looking at uh, addressing the messes in our lives, but we're also going to be inviting the Lord into our lives to help us to clean these messes up. And these messes... Well, they're not new to us, are they? These messes, people have been struggling with messes from the very beginning. I mean, before, before we even look at cleaning these messes up, which we're going to do over the next couple of weeks this morning, I thought it would be a really good idea to just back up and say, okay, how and where did these messes even begin in the first place? I mean, we have to go back to the beginning of all messes if we're going to do this. And it's with a story that is probably familiar to most of you. It's a story of a couple named Adam and Eve. So maybe we could take a brief walk through the garden together. And I know that most of you know this story, but let me brief recap. Adam and Eve are the first people ever to walk the face of this earth. 
They, they are put in charge of the garden God had given to them, and, and they loved it. They loved caring for the garden. They loved caring for the animals. They had that responsibility, and they were good at it. They loved it. It was great. They enjoyed spending time with each other. They enjoyed spending time with God. In fact, they walked with God through the garden, having an intimate relationship with him. Everything was perfect in the garden. Everything was good and everything would remain perfect as long as they followed God's one simple instruction. And this is where we pick up the story in Genesis. So let's follow this, starting in Genesis chapter 2. It says, But the Lord God warned Adam, You may freely eat the fruit of every tree in the garden, except the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. If you eat its fruit, you will surely die. Now, I'm not sure what kind of fruit was on this tree. It was probably not an apple, although most of us think of it as an apple. It was probably a fruit that is no longer uh, even here. We've, we've never tasted it before. I'm sure it, it was gone a long time ago. But, but most of us think of it as an apple. And in this garden, Adam and Eve have no limits, no boundaries whatsoever. They could do anything they wanted except one thing. All they had to do was avoid the tree in the center of the garden and all things would be good and all things were going good. But then we know something awful happens, don't we? And, and it's in, in Genesis chapter 3, the very first verse, that we see this new development taking place. And this is what it says. The serpent was the shrewdest of all the wild animals the Lord God had made. And one day he asked the woman... Did God really say you must not eat the fruit from any of the trees in the garden? He asked this question. And of course, Satan is represented here by the serpent. And you can hear how he begins to twist God's words. And it's a question that, that he poses that, that really causes us to wonder if God's words are valid. In fact, I'm sure that, that Eve would have begun to feel maybe even some doubt in God's goodness. It's a question that implied perhaps that God was not giving them the best, that God was somehow holding out on Adam and Eve, that, that, that maybe God was being too strict on him, or, or that he was being a selfish God. He wasn't giving them the best. And yet, even in that question, Eve defended the boundary. She defended the boundary to Satan, and Eve said this to him, Of course we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden. Eve replied, It's only the fruit from the tree in the middle of the garden we are not allowed to eat. God said, You must not eat it or even touch it. If you do, you will die. She defends the boundary. Ah, But then Satan once again speaks up, and he tells her, You won't die. The serpent replied to the woman, God knows your eyes will be opened as soon as you eat it, and you will be like God, knowing both good and evil. You know, in this moment, what happens is Eve forgets 
all the things that she has. She has the garden, all of it, no limits. And instead of remembering all that she had, Satan takes a moment to highlight the one thing that she doesn't have. And he tells her, you won't die. You will be like God. And these are two enticing promises that, that, that Satan makes to Eve that she can't resist. She can't refuse. And it says in the very next verse, the woman was convinced she saw the tree was beautiful and its fruit looked delicious and she wanted the wisdom it would give her and the rest is history Adam and Eve chose to disobey God and they ate the fruit and their eyes were open as a result and they began to see things they were never meant to see this is the result the relationship was fractured the relationship with each other was fractured, and their relationship with God was fractured. You talk about being in a mess. I don't know what kind of messes you have going on in your life, but I can guarantee you it's not this one. This is the mess of all messes. And yet, I know people who, when they hear this story and they read this story, they go to one of the three cleanup methods that I gave you earlier. In fact, Adam went to one of the cleanup methods I gave you, and he blamed Eve. He said, Eve gave me the fruit. And then Eve went to the cleanup method too. Well, the serpent told me to eat it. And even us, when we read this story, it is not uncommon for us to go to that cleanup method, and we immediately blame God for this situation, and we say things that, that we think God allowed Adam and Eve to fail. We, we, we say this mess that they're in is God's fault. I mean, it makes no sense. In other words, if, if God, why, why would God even create a tree or create a fruit that wasn't intended for them to eat? If God truly loved Adam and Eve, he would have never done this to begin with. He, he's setting them up to fail from the beginning. It's God's fault. And if you've thought this, don't feel bad. Because a lot of us think this when we hear this story. In fact, even as I was studying through this scripture this past week, that same thought came to my mind. God, why would you have done that to begin with? Was it God's fault? Was he setting them up for failure? What if I told you this? What if I told you that this is far from what actually happened in the garden? What if I told you that, that our perspective on this is way off? What if we've gotten the story wrong? We're looking at this all wrong. What if what actually happens in the garden is that God doesn't allow Adam and Eve to fail. Instead, God allows Adam and Eve to succeed. I mean, between me and you, doesn't that make a lot more sense? Because, stay with me, if in fact God is all-knowing and God is all-loving 
and God is all good, that's who I believe God to be. If that is true, why in the world would he set them up to fail? That doesn't line up with the God that I know. It doesn't make sense. And if, in fact, God is all-knowing, and God is all-loving, and God is all-good, like I believe him to be, then wouldn't there be a logical reason for him to tell them not to eat that fruit? That's, that makes more sense to me. You know, let me try to offer a, a little bit different of a perspective on this story this morning. So, so, so stay with me here as I, as I process through this with you. I believe the fruit and the tree in this story are not a curse. I believe the fruit and the tree in the story are a blessing. And I say that because I think the fruit and the tree in the story represents something. It represents a limit. It represents a boundary that God, that God doesn't want us to cross. And he doesn't want us to cross it, not because God is some kind of a killjoy, not because God is some kind of a out-to-get-us kind of God who wants us to fail. That is not the God that I know. What if it is the exact opposite? What if God is setting them up to succeed? And I know why we struggle with thinking this way. It's because we don't like boundaries and limits in our lives. They're uncomfortable. They're hard. I don't want boundaries and limits on my life. But if we're being honest with each other, with each other we know that boundaries are good for healthy relationships. They're good for, for our lives. They're good for our emotions. They're good for our health. Boundaries are good. And that is the truth of limits and boundaries, that they are there for our good. What's interesting about this story is when God first gave Adam and Eve this boundary, they never once questioned his goodness. Adam and Eve, after hearing, hey, don't eat the fruit from that tree, they never folded their arms, stomped their foot, and went, why not? We want to eat it. Why can't we? They never threw a fit. They never threw a tantrum. They never ran off angry with God. They accepted this boundary as a good thing in their life because they understood who God was, and they knew that he loved them, and they never felt like he was holding out on them. If God said no... There must be a good reason for it. And they believed and they accepted that. Parents in this room, you know this principle I am speaking of all too well because we set boundaries on our kids all the time. And it isn't because we're these vengeful, angry parents out to get them. No, it's because we love our kids and we know that boundaries are a good thing. For instance, we put boundaries on what our kids can watch on TV or how much TV they can watch. We put boundaries on what they can eat and how much they can eat. We put boundaries on when they should go to sleep and how much sleep they should get. We put boundaries on how close they can play to the road so that they're safe. We put boundaries on who they play with. We put boundaries on our kids all the time because we love our kids and we know those things are good for them. Boundaries are good. You know the only reason that principle changes in this story 
is because Satan twisted God's words. That's the only reason. Because Adam and Eve believed that that limit, that boundary was good until Satan twisted the word and he questioned God's goodness. He questioned God's intentions. He questions God's trustworthiness and he questioned the goodness and the limitations that God puts on them and that he puts on us. He twists God's word in our minds too. Limits are for our good. But then there's a second thing. Limits also give us an opportunity to to trust God. Do you realize that the tree and the fruit here are the first time in human history where people have the opportunity to put their full trust in God and who he is and what he has to say? It's the first time in human history, where people have the opportunity to take God at his word, and this is the absolute most important thing we could ever do. John, in fact, in his book in the New Testament, he records Jesus saying the same thing. A crowd of people had surrounded Jesus to hear him teach, and it's recorded in John chapter 6, Jesus telling them this, that this is the only work God wants from you. Believe in the one he has sent. The only thing God truly wants from us is us. All of us. That's the only thing God truly wants us to put our complete trust in him. That he's the one that knows best. And in fact, it, it, this isn't the only place where where Jesus says this. In fact, just in the book of John, 98 times we find the words trust and believe. It's that important. And yet Adam and Eve, they, they lost sight. They, they lost sight. They forgot that God's boundary was for their good. And they chose to put their trust in something else besides God. They put their trust in themselves. And as a result of crossing this boundary, a horrible mess happened. A mess that's affected mankind from that point forward. You know, funny thing is about this, this is a little side note I'm thinking about, is, is isn't it one of those things that it's a lot easier to see that boundaries are good and that they give us opportunities to trust God when it's someone else's life. It's super easy for me to look into someone else's life and to tell them that I see a boundary that's good in your life and encourage them to trust God in their mess. It is easy for me to do that when it's somebody else. When it's my life, it becomes a little more difficult. It's harder but the fact remains that we too have limits and boundaries that in our life that God has put there. You've seen them. You've felt them. And we also have the opportunity to put our entire trust in God and believe in him that they are good for us. And just like Eve, all we have to do is stay within our limits. But we don't. We, we, we tiptoe outside the limit, outside the boundary. We lose sight and we get persuaded to believe once again that, that 
this good God, that this all-knowing God, that this all-loving God, that he's somehow holding out on me. He's, he's, he's holding out on me or he's untrustworthy, which doesn't make any sense, but that's what we think when we step outside these boundaries. And when we do it, we all know what a mess it can cause in our life. Let, let me give you just a couple of practical examples I'm thinking of. There's a bunch of limits that we could talk about this morning, but I'm going to highlight just a couple that, that hit a little close to me personally, and maybe, maybe these will resonate with you today too. I want to look at first the limit that God puts on my personality. God puts a limit on our personality. In fact, over Christmas, my wife and I went to Michigan to visit my brother and sister-in-law, and we were with them for a week. I love my brother-in-law. He's one of my favorite people in the world. But my brother-in-law, he, he in his personality, he is great with people, especially strangers. He's fantastic. He's one of those guys that can walk into a room and instantly everyone in the room likes him. He barely has to speak, and already they like him. They gravitate toward him. And in within minutes, he's able to talk to them all like he's known them ever since they were kids. He has that personality that is attractive to other people. I, on the other hand, I don't. I am awkward. I know this. So if, you're, if you've ever thought, boy, Charles is awkward, believe me, I know. <laughs> I'm well aware. I, I, I struggle with it. I'm, I'm quieter. I'm not quite as easy to, to connect. I try. I work hard at it. I've, I've even told God that I'm, I'm frustrated with this. I've questioned him and said, God, why do you make me like this? I don't like this personality you gave me. I would rather have my brother-in-law's personality. I have been limited. It doesn't come naturally to me like it does to my brother-in-law. And I've prayed to God and I've shared with God my struggles. And yet through that, I can't help but to continually be brought back and reminded of a truth that, that he gives to me, that he loves me. And more than that, he likes me. He likes me because he's created me so uniquely different. He's created all of you so uniquely different. And he wants us to embrace authentically the personalities that he's made us to be. I, I, I often... When I get into my head, I go to this scripture that I use to encourage people with a lot of times. It's, it's out of Psalm 139, verse 17, and it just says, How precious are your thoughts about me, O God. They can't be numbered. I can't even count them, and they outnumber the grains of sand, it says. How precious are your thoughts about me, O God. They can't be numbered. He loves me. He likes me so much that he thinks such amazing things about me, precious thoughts about me that they can't even be numbered. He likes me. And I, I, I lean into that. But the problem is, what happens when you don't like who you are? 
What, what happens when, when you ignore the limit of your personality and you try to become someone you're not? What then? I think that's when we end up living an inauthentic life. That's when we, we damage the view of ourselves and who we are, who God has made us to be. We damage that view and it hurts our relationships and it hurts our relationships with others and with God. And ultimately, I can tell you when I have tried to go beyond the limit of my personality and be someone I'm not, it's exhausting. It, it tires me out. I, this, is a, this is a limit I wish our teenagers would grasp. I, I wish that they would trust God with this limit. I think about this one all the time with our girls at home. There's more than just personalities. There's limits of things like, like rest. There's a limit of rest. You, you, you know, God takes rest so seriously that he himself rested. In fact, of all the commandments... Uh, the, the commandment on Sabbath rest is the longest commandment. And we see in Jesus' own life over and over and over him taking advantage of this commandment of rest. Jesus, Jesus took time to get away from people so that he could re, re, refresh and, and replenish. And he did this either right before or right after busy times in his life. We were created to slow down and rest, this is a limit that God has put on our lives, and it is a gift. And yet, and yet people in our culture, they, they don't see it as a gift. They, they push us to be busy all the time. Fill every moment with something. In fact, I've heard people, and I've even said this ignorantly, I've said this phrase, you might have heard, I'll, I'll sleep when I die. Really? Rest is a limit. Sleep is a limit God has put in our life, and it is good for us. Sleep is one of those things that reminds us that the world goes on even when we're not awake. It reminds us we're not in control. Sleep reminds us that God is working even when we're not aware of it. Sleep is a good Thing, and yet it's a limit that we push over and over and over. And I tell you, in 2020, this upcoming year, this is one of those things that I know to strengthen my relationships with others and with God, I need to find moments of rest that is critically important. Or what about the limit of, of technology? You know, this isn't to say technology is bad, it's good. In fact, I know that, that because of our phones and the internet and things, we have ways to communicate like never before. We're able to get information easier like never before, but like all things, limits are good for us. Because when the information that I'm looking at online is bad, when the pictures and the images and the videos that I'm watching online, and you know the ones I'm talking about are bad, when my screen time outweighs my time with my wife and my kids, then I have overstepped the limit of technology. I have crossed the boundary and I'm making a mess. It's a lot easier to identify in others, though, isn't it? We tell our kids all the time, we say, put your phones down. 
put them away. No phones at the dinner table. And, and, and then, it, then we try to help them through thinking about what's appropriate to text, when it's appropriate to text, how to appropriate text, how to not avoid a critical conversation by simply throwing emojis at people. And if you don't know what an emoji is, you don't struggle with this, believe me. But your nine-year-old does. This, is, this, is a, this can be a problem, and I tell you, in 2020, along with the limit of rest, give your relationships the gift of your eyes. Look at the person who's speaking to you. Put your phone down. I tell you, my wife is a beautiful woman, and I want to see her when she's speaking. Put your phone down. So many of us ignore this limit, this gift of limiting our technology and it's showing because it's wreaking havoc on our relationships. You know, there's so many more we could talk about. There's the limit of our marriages, the limits of our sexuality, the limits of eating, the limits of, of, uh, of money. There's a lot of limits that we can talk about today, but I'm, I want to boil it all down to this last one. Because this last one is the one that, that, that trumps them all. And that is the limit of our worship. The limit of our worship. This word worship means worth-ship. It means worship. It means that, that we are, are, are giving ultimate worth to something in our lives. And wisely, God knows this about us, and he knows that we are only capable of truly giving worth to one thing in our lives, and he wants to be that one thing. Just going back to Adam and Eve for a moment. In the beginning, they gave ultimate worth to God. And when they did, it was perfect. All things were how they should be, and they had peace with God, and they had peace with themselves, but something significant shifted, and they were presented with an opportunity to ignore God and instead to become like God. Their worship shifted. Their worth shifted to themselves instead of God. And when it did, it says in Genesis chapter 3, the woman was convinced. And when she was convinced, a mess occurred, and we've been addressing the mess ever since. You know, the messes in our lives occur when we're convinced we know more than what God knows. They occur when, when we give worship and worship to, to ourselves. And when we do, we take this fruit and all the things in our lives, they fall apart. And so I think, what do we do about this? What, what, do, we, do we just try to clean this up on our, on our own? To which I go to words of Andy Stanley, who says, if you could fix it yourself, don't you think you would have done that by now? So we don't. Don't try to fix it yourself. Instead, allow God to enter the mess, and address it. Allow God to do this, and I love how he does this. It leads us to our bottom line for today. Though we ignore God's limits, God's love knows no limits. 
I, I love this, this scene from the Old Testament. It's, it's probably my favorite scene. It takes place right after Adam and Eve have, have crossed the limit. They have broken the boundary that God gave to them. And, and, and I love God's response to them. Listen, listen to how God enters the mess into Adam and Eve's life. It says this in Genesis chapter 3, when the cool evening breezes were blowing, the man and his wife heard the Lord God walking about the garden. So they hid from the Lord God among the trees. Typical when we cross a boundary, guilt and shame, we hide. But then the Lord God called to the man, I love God's question. Simple, where are you? Where are you? This is a mind-blowing question to me because God doesn't lose his cool. God doesn't forsake them. God doesn't respond to them how I would. I have responded to people in anger and frustration. I have said these words. I have said, I am done with you. And God doesn't say that. He never once went to Adam and Eve and said, hey, I am done with you guys. Instead, he came to them in the garden and he just questioned, where are you? He pursued them. He loved them. And he wanted to show them that his love knows no boundaries. And this is that his love is greater and bigger than anything we could ever do. And this is incredible news for us today. And yet, even with this news, I know some that will say, well, Charles, this is Adam and Eve. This is Old Testament. This is a long time ago. This isn't really relevant to us today, to which I would completely disagree with you. And I would point you to these words from the Apostle Paul as he's writing to the church of Ephesus and he's writing to the church, us, the church. These words are meant for us. And he says this, but God is so rich in mercy and he loved us so much that even though we were dead because of our sins, he gave us life when he raised Christ from the dead. It's only by God's grace that you have been saved. Jesus seeks us no matter the mess we've made. I don't know what mess you have going on in your life. And maybe, maybe that mess that you're in has you hiding. That's normal. But I tell you this. If you're hiding, I want to encourage you, trust God in his love and in his goodness to help address this mess because I promise you, he's here and he's saying, where are you? So where are you? Let me pray this morning. Lord Jesus, I thank you that you pursue us with such incredible grace and love. Lord, I'm so, I'm so grateful for that. And, and Lord, I, I, as we're looking over these next couple of weeks into more of these messes and what, what this looks like and how to do this, Lord, I'm asking that you would just come and that you would fill this place, Lord, and that you, you would help us to address these messes, Lord, and that we would not do it on our own, but we invite you into this. Help us, please. We lay them at your feet, and we trust and love you. In your name I pray. Amen.